Good afternoon. Thank you for coming to Hudson Institute. And I also would like to welcome our C-SPAN uh, 1 audience this afternoon for uh, what I know is going to be a uh, fantastically interesting panel um, and uh, also a very timely one uh, given events of the last week, especially the, um, the detaining, uh, the uh, IRGC Navy detaining 10 American sailors this past week. Uh, and of course, other recent events, including the uh, the attacks on two Saudi Arabian uh, diplomatic missions in Iran. So, given that the uh, topic of our panelists turmoil in the Persian Gulf, are Iran and Saudi Arabia poised for more conflict? Again, it's an especially timely issue. We'll go for about, uh, I believe, for about an hour uh, and 15 minutes. Then I'll open it up for uh, for some questions for the audience. We may even open it up a little earlier, given the uh, given the amount of interest in the subject. Uh, we have a fantastic panel here. Uh, to my immediate left is uh, Ali Alfonet, who's a senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Um, to his left is Philip Smythe. Philip is, uh, Philip is an, uh, I believe, uh, an adjunct fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Philip and I have uh, known each other for a while, and Philip uh, runs also a... Uh, a website called, uh, or a blog called Jihadology. Well, no, um, Aaron Zellin runs that. Oh, ah, okay. I just have my little Hezbollah section. Oh, okay, yeah, all right. Uh, to his left is my, uh, is my um, Hudson Institute colleague, um, Michael Duran. Uh, and um, again, it's an extraordinary panel, so uh, I thank you for coming, and let's open it up right now. Ali, if you would begin, and thanks very much again for being here. Thank you so much for your kind words, your invitation, and for providing me with this opportunity to share my analysis uh, with you. Detainment uh, of American soldiers in the Persian Gulf by the Revolutionary Guards uh, came as a surprise to uh, some in town, and then the relatively fast release of those same soldiers has been uh, declared almost uh, like a diplomatic victory for uh, the Secretary of State, uh, and also for the uh, U.S. government's diplomacy uh, with the government of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, I must confess that this was hardly surprising for me. Uh, and it is because of the revolutionary nature of the regime in Tehran. I will use a couple of minutes uh, talking about that revolutionary nature. And after that, I will try to argue why some Sunni monarchies in the Persian Gulf region, by mistreating their Shia populations, are actually indirectly helping the revolutionary regime in Tehran. So in that way, uh, I probably put myself in a position where I will be attacked <laughs> both by the regime in Tehran and by some U.S. allies that, in that's the Persian That's fantastic. Gulf happy, to get, happy, happy about that. <laughs> so the revolutionary regime. Uh, for most Americans, uh, the revolution in Iran was a historical event which took place in 1979, 37 years ago. And particularly here in Washington, 37 years is a very, very long time. It is almost the same era and age as that of the pyramids you know, and that kind of biblical events. Nobody has that kind of historical memory. In Iran, on the other hand, you know, the revolution is perceived as an ongoing process for the government of the Islamic Republic of Iran, for the Revolutionary Guards, and for Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, the revolution is a permanent revolution. They believe in Trotsky's thesis on permanence of revolutions. It is not a historical event. It's an ongoing process. And the one institution 
which is charged with permanence of that revolution, of course, is the Revolutionary Guards. By engaging in acts against the U.S. Navy in the Persian Gulf region, by staging and attacking diplomatic missions in Iran, and by constantly attacking the institutions of state within Iran, which serve a different purpose, that of the survival of the regime, because there are such institutions. The regular military in Iran, if you take a look at their constitutional mission, it is to safeguard the territorial integrity of Iran. The mission of the Revolutionary Guards, according to the Constitution, is to safeguard the revolution and its achievement. In other words, it's abstract, and it has to do with ideology. It's a totally different mission than that of the military. If you compare the mission of the police with the mission of the besieged militia of the Revolutionary Guards, the police is charged with upholding law and order in the country and by protecting the diplomatic missions to Iran. The role of the besieged is similar to that of the Revolutionary Guards, permanence of the revolution. This is the duality. This is the parallel structures that we have in Iran. So what tools do the Revolutionary <coughs> Guards have at their disposal to continue spreading the revolution in the entire Middle East region? That is by reaching out to Shia populations in the Persian Gulf region and beyond. Now, most unfortunately, some Sunni governments are making the job of the Revolutionary Guards easier rather than more difficult. Particularly when you look at the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, where the Shia population is practically be, uh, treated as second-class citizens, you make it easier for the Revolutionary Guards to appeal to them. And you end up chasing the Saudi Shia into the arms of Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei. The same thing, unfortunately, is happening in, in Bahrain, another mm. kingdom. But if you look at other countries of the Persian Gulf, you see no appeal of Iran to, to the populations. In Kuwait, Kuwaiti Shia are loyal citizens. They are not a fifth column of the Islamic Republic of Iran. They participate in the political process. They are good citizens. The same thing in United Arab Emirates, the same thing in Oman, the same thing many other places. So if there is one policy recommendation that we should think of, and I hope that this is a message that our good friends in Saudi Arabia and also Bahrain will listen to, is that if you treat your Shia populations as citizens, they will be good citizens. But if you look at them with suspicion, if you suppress them, if you suppress their just demands for being treated in a dignified way, you end up chasing them into the arms of the Revolutionary Guards, into the arms of Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, and you end up contributing to the permanence of the revolution in Iran. Thank you. Thank you, Ali. That was fantastic. Thanks very much. Uh, and there are a number of different things that I'm going to want to uh, circle back to later. Especially, I, I thought it was very interesting, the point you made about, um, about the parallel structure of the revolution. And I'm going to want to come back and talk about the, are, the, uh, are the revolution and the state, are these parallel structures at odds with each other? And how do they, how do they work? So thanks very much again for a great introduction. Philip, if, uh, if you can continue. Sure. Um, I'm going to go a little bit into some of the weeds here. Um, I actually got into studying what was going on with certain Shia armed groups, uh, particularly in Bahrain, because I was following social networks that belong to Iraqi Shia militias that are completely controlled by the Iranians, by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. So I found this fascinating. 
Uh, so what I'm going to do is try to go into a little bit of that and also demonstrate what that means for the region and also uh, how we're supposed to be looking at this. Um, I don't want to remove agency from certain actors on the ground. Ali is correct in terms of saying that certain moves by Sunni Gulf regimes do actually put Shia in a position where they have to reach out or want to reach out to the Iranians and then will uh, very much more quickly buy into their propaganda message or buy into, oh, we'll be trained by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps or we'll do this or we'll do that. Um, I think there's also kind of a broader sectarian narrative here that has been played out simply due to the war in Iraq, the war in Syria. Uh, the war in Syria, again, the sectarian narrative was actually driven by the Iranians, so you now see this coming full circle. Um, so, I mean, I think there are a few other things that, that impact what's going on in the Gulf with the Shia. Um, so one of the big issues that I've noticed was with Bahrain. Uh, in Bahrain, I've counted around 15 to 22 different groups and front groups that have declared that they want to use militant methods to depose the monarchy there. Um, now, again, this has direct implications for U.S. security policy, why we base the Fifth Fleet in Bahrain and Jufair. Uh, and some of these groups have actually called for attacks against the Americans. Uh, one of them, called Sarail Mukhtar, uh, which actually openly announced only two days ago that they had links to certain Iraqi Shia militias, uh, very publicly on, on their uh, Facebook page. Uh, they actually came out and said that they would want to launch rockets. Uh, they invented a, a, a new rocket. It looks very similar to Hamas's Qassam rocket. Uh, they said they wanted to launch these rockets back in 2014. Um, there have been a number of bombings that have, been, uh, that have taken place due to a lot of these militant Shia elements that are active in Bahrain. Usually they target the security administration there and any security targets they can get their hands on uh, or other government targets. Uh, the message is very clear and if we look at this from how the Iranians have structured it, it's to send a message not simply to Bahrain and not simply to the Gulf but also to the Americans that they can send uh, kind of a, they can start a, a, a low-level brush fire war if they want to in the backyard of a very prominent American military base. Now, this also ties in with Saudi Arabia. Why? Uh, there's a very close relationship between Qatif uh, Shia, who live in the eastern province, and with Bahraini Shia. And a lot of these groups, these more militant factions, many of them grew out of the, the peaceful protest movement, uh, a lot of them are interlinked. And because they're interlinked, you'll see when arms transports are going through, Magically, some will get dropped off in Saudi Arabia, some will get dropped off in Bahrain. Um, I, I guess going forward from there, there have been a number of developments that have actually happened in this past year. Uh, one of the groups called Sarail Ashtar, which had links to Saudi Shia, which had links to Iraqi Shia groups, uh, and also was a very active militant element that was within Bahrain, uh, they were essentially smashed by Bahrain security services. There have been a number of arrests, there's been a number of arms caches found. Uh, actually in September there was about one and a half metric tons of explosives that were seized uh, by Bahraini authorities in addition to what we could call an EFP manufacturing plant. If you look at the bombs, I've actually been able to handle the explosives and actually look at some of the, the firearms that were confiscated. Um, and when you look at this, the cells that were formed are very, very similar to the cells that the IRGC was forming in southern Iraq, uh, back in Basra, uh, back when the United States was there. Uh, so when you see kind of this upsurge in technological capabilities, uh, it's obvious that an outside hand uh, has had some presence in it. Uh, and I think this, this kind of leads us to the bigger question. Does Iran really want to escalate the conflict there? 
Um, I'm of the belief that, again, they're long-term thinkers. They're very strategic. So this is a very long-term kind of goal. Uh, I mean, I've heard different arguments that have come down uh, from different policymakers and also from different policymakers in the Gulf that have said maybe the Americans during the negotiations maybe said, why don't you take a break from uh, certain militant activities in Bahrain and Saudi? Um, I, again, I don't have any proof to that effect. Um, but, I mean, you can see uh, there's still action that's going on. But I do believe that Iran wants to keep it on a low burn for now. Khamenei himself has come out and said that the Bahraini Shia are an oppressed population and he would do everything to try and, you know, liberate them. Uh, interestingly enough, two days after that speech, there was an arms thou, which was seized going into Bahrain. So, I mean, I, I think there's still an interest to uh, increase militant activity there. But again, it's on a low burn. Philip, thanks very much. Um, uh, Mike, if you would, uh, if, if you would uh, pick this up and, and, and round off our, uh, our introduction here. Thanks. Um, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the U.S. reading of all this and uh, the dilemma that the, U, that the U.S. is in. But let me just start by um, imagining um, a conversation between the United States and the Saudis uh, based on the recommendation that, uh, that Ali made, that uh, the United States should uh, urge the Saudis to treat their own Shiite population differently. Um, I, I think that that conversation today um, would, would, uh, would be very unfruitful. It would be, it would, it would be unfruitful almost in any, in, in any circumstances, but particularly unfruitful today um, uh, because the, the Saudis would, they would sit and they would listen politely to the Americans and say, thank you for that, uh, thank you for that lecture, uh, and then they would ignore it. Um, and that's uh, for many different reasons, but especially now, because from the Saudi point of view, and, and I think correctly, uh, the United States has tilted in the region overall toward Iran and away from Saudi Arabia. It's tilted away from Saudi Arabia, it's tilted away from Israel, and it's tilted away from Turkey, um, and as well from the UAE and, uh, and the, other, uh, the other Gulf sheikhdoms. Um, that's with respect to the larger question uh, from 30,000 feet of uh, what is the proper order, regional order, um, uh, in the Middle East. The, n the number one question for everyone um, in the region uh, about regional order uh, is Syria. Syria, the, the conflict in Syria is the center of gravity uh, uh, of, all that is, uh, uh, of all that is happening. Um, and as far as the regional actors are concerned, the United States has taken the side of Iran and, and, and Assad in the, in, the, in the Syria conflict. And I personally uh, uh, agree with them on that. That's not, the rhetoric, that's not the rhetorical position of the United States, but it's the de facto position in terms of what they're, they're doing on the ground. If you're Saudi Arabia and you look at, um, and you look at U.S. policy anywhere from, anywhere from Baghdad to Beirut, uh, the United States is, is in alignment with the, uh, uh, with the Iranians uh, or with other actors that are, uh, that are hostile to the established uh, uh, order in, in the Sunni areas, such as the Kurds, for example. And the United States is arming Kurds in Syria who are, for all intents and purposes, an extension of the PKK in Turkey, the PKK being uh, Kurdish separatists <coughs> in, in, in Turkey. Um, so if you're if you're sitting in if you're sitting in um, if you're sitting in uh, uh, in Ankara and you're looking at U.S. policy in Syria, 
the, the Americans are building an, uh, an order, or their policy is leading toward a new order in Syria in which the Kurdish separatists of Turkey are going to have a safe haven. If you're Saudi Arabia and you're looking at U.S. policy towards Syria, uh, you see that, there, you're, that, that we're going to have a Syria with a revitalized Iranian role in the, uh, in the country and the, uh, and the Assad regime revitalized and Assad in power in, in, in perpetuity. Uh, if you're the Israelis and you're looking at what, what the United States is doing, then you see that eventually what's going to happen is that the Russians and the Iranians are going to help Assad to reimpose his control in southern Syria all the way up to the Golan, and you're going to have IRGC members on the ground right on the Israeli border on, in, the, in, in the Golan. If you're the Saudis and you're looking at what the United States is doing in Iraq, then you see the United States is, for all intents and purposes, the air force of the Shiite militias armed, trained, and equipped, and effectively led by Iran inside, inside Iraq. So if you, if you look at this the way this, this is going, uh, and you imagine this conversation that Ali uh, suggested that we have, um, you, you can kind of see what, um, from the Saudi point of view, you say, well, hey, uh, Washington, what about all these militias that Iran is arming and training and equipping in, in four or five different Ar uh, Arab countries? What's your policy for stopping that? And of course, there is no policy for, uh, for stopping that. Um, I'll just add, you know, this isn't just a theoretical conversation because in a sense it just happened recently. And that's when, uh, when the Saudis executed uh, Nimr al-Nimr, this, uh, this uh, cleric, the Shiite cleric inside uh, Saudi Arabia. That was, pre that was preceded by conversations from the United, in, in, between the United States, between U.S. officials and Saudi officials, in which the U.S. said, don't do this, this is a provocation, this is a sectarian provocation which is, gonna, uh, which is going to uh, uh, cause difficulty with Iran. From the Saudi point of view, this was the United States effectively reinforcing Iran's voice as a representative of Shiites around the, uh, 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 around the region. Uh, it was the United States saying that the Iranians have a legitimate say in how we uh, and how we, we interact with our uh, uh, with with the Shiites in our uh, uh, in in our country. In effect, and I think Lee actually wrote this in one of his columns. This was a death sentence to Nimr al Nimr. The, the no way the Saudis are going to let the Amer uh, Americans align with the Iranians about the internal configuration of of, of Saudi society. The only way that our voice with the Saudis about the way they treat their Shiites is going to have any resonance with the Saudis is if they believe that we are building a regional order in which their larger security concerns are going to be addressed and their fear of an expanding Iran is going to be uh, addressed. And if they, if they actually believe that we would roll back Iranian militias or help them to roll back Iranian militias around the uh, 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 Iranian trained and equipped and led uh, militias around the, uh, uh, around the region, then we might be able to have a fruitful conversation with them about what's going on inside their, uh, inside their country. But under the current context, it's impossible. Thanks, Mike. Thanks very much. Um, one of the things that I want to come back to, which you, uh, which you brought up here, and which will play on, um, play on uh, the point that I wanted to uh, come back to with Ali again, is about, um, is about the revolution and the state. And if it's, possible, if it's possible for actually the White House to integrate a revolution into the regional order, and if a lot of what we're seeing right now is actually the, uh, the result or the function of trying to integrate a revolution into the regional order. Um, but I believe that Ali uh, wanted to, uh, to respond to something you said. So let's start off with that, then we'll come back around to other things. 
when we talk with Saudi friends, they do point at uh, some hidden uh, American-Iranian conspiracy to counter the Sunnis in the entire Middle East region. Uh, but what I see is the, uh, and, and, and the developments that we see in the Middle East is mostly because of uh, indecisiveness in the White House and a foreign policy, a Middle East policy, which is wrong. Uh, U.S. disentanglement militarily uh, from Iraq uh, completely immaturely before the Iraqi state was capable of defending itself, before the Iraqi state had, had the institutions uh, to take care of its own security, that was a mistake. And I do believe that military disentanglement from the Middle East has created a vacuum of power in the entire Middle East region that Iran was in a better position uh, to take advantage of and trying to fill. And this is exactly what they are doing. They do have the institutions, they have the units, particularly the Quds Force of the Revolutionary Guards and many, many other institutions, which serve the purpose of exporting the revolution. And this, of course, creates a lot of concern among, among the Sunni regimes, in particular Saudi Arabia, which is, in this case, I believe, justly concerned about what Washington is doing, because it is changing the balance of power in the Middle East region. My argument is if Saudi Arabia and Bahrain continue treating their own populations as second-class citizens when it comes to the Shia groups, then they would be more uh, open towards uh, propaganda from, from the Iranian regime. So, so it's a slightly different angle. I'm not arguing that you know, the Obama administration has had a correct policy for, for, for the Middle East region. I actually do believe that some of the problems that we are, we are seeing are consequences of that. Like, like what? I mean, so, so let's come into, the, uh, let's come into this um, conversation about whether or not it's possible, starting with your description. You have a state. I believe that, I mean, I mean Mike, but isn't this something that, that, uh, that Henry Kissinger said a while ago, that Iran has to decide whether it's going to be a state or a revolution, or we have to figure this out? So is the problem that we've now, or one of the things that we're coming up against is the fact that Iran, it's really a revolution, or the revolution, that parallel structure overwhelms the state. Yes. So, okay, so? Yes, that, that indeed is the case. And we always see that you know, the, the Iranian government, whenever it is uh, facing uh, uh, existential threats, it begins you know, to, 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 to behave. Uh, you have the emergence of someone like President Rouhani at the time that Iran was facing bankruptcy. Then suddenly you see the rise of the technocratic elites of Iran and somebody like Dr. Zarif who can charm you know, Washington and he can talk to the diplomatic you know, uh, uh, corps in, in, in New York. Uh, but whenever that need is no longer there, the technocrats and the better educated, more sophisticated types in the Iranian regime, they are expendable. Is this what's happening now? Exactly. Is that what happened Literally. with taking the sailors? Of course, of course, because the revolution has to survive. The revolution in particular has to survive emergence of somebody like Rouhani. So it is, uh, the, uh, what you see is Revolutionary Guards trying to assert its influence, trying to communicate two messages to the world. First of all, to humiliate the United States, and second, to, to you know, tell the world that it is the Revolutionary Guards which is in charge of Iran's foreign policy. And, and, and the fact that they were released uh, faster than, let's say, the British sailors who had to enjoy Iranian Persian hospitality for 13 <laughs> days, it's, it's honestly no cause for celebration in Washington. You know, okay, you know, if, if Secretary Kerry wants to build an arc of triumph for himself here in Washington, <laughs> fine. But in reality... No, you're right. It is very interesting the way that this sort of said, isn't this a great thing? This is the diplomatic channel that was open for the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action 
See how productive it's already proven. The revolutionary guards got what it desired, to humiliate the U.S. and to assert itself as the one institution in Iran making the decisions. Uh, Philip, how exactly, if you can give a little more detail then on how the revolution, I, I, I was reading an article by one of our colleagues, uh, Hanina Kadar, and uh, now Lebanon, and she was talking, I don't want to take it too far afield, but she was talking about, um, she was talking about the Nigerian, uh, the Nigerian Sheikh Zagzaki, oh, yeah. right? So I just want to give, get a little more detail on how, how, the, um, how the regime replicates different revolutionary structures around the world. I mean, so, but let, let, let's stick to the Gulf right now. Okay. Uh, you know, Bahrain and, um, and, 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 and Saudi. But if you can just give a little more detail on that, like how it actually replicates itself. Well, there's a model that they follow, and it is the Lebanese Hezbollah model. Uh, where often they will get involved in politics. There is a military wing, and I hope nobody stretches that too far with what I mean by that. Um, you know, there's a military section. There is this ideology of mukawama, of resistance, that is always embedded in there. It's anti-American. It's anti-Israel, uh, very often anti-Semitic. Uh, so you have all these things that are wrapped in, uh, and also uh, in, I guess, going with this kind of anti-Western uh, uh, sense that they have, they're also loyal because of the absolute wilayat al-faqih, which is the, the ideology that the Iranian, uh, the Islamic Republic is based upon. Often these groups will kind of have that incorporated within the structure. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're always public about it. Uh, and I'll go into this for Bahrain. Uh, a lot of the groups that were announced don't really announce where they are ideologically. Surah al-Muqtar, Surah al-Ashtar, None of these groups have really come out, though you'll see inklings of it at times where you'll see a Khamenei poster here, or you'll see Khomeini being uh, paraded around. Uh, the February 14th youth movement, which has moved in a militant direction, and they used to be leaders kind of in this, this protest movement, the peaceful protest movement, now they're yeah. throwing Molotovs and uh, people that are associated with them are building bombs and whatnot. Um, when you look at them, they've had protests for Quds Day, for Yom al-Quds, which is a day that was invented by Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, to, you know, celebrate, if you will, uh, the process to destroy the state of Israel. Uh, and they've been parading around with different Khamenei posters. But it doesn't, they have not come out and said, we believe in Wilayat al-Faqih. We are, you know, agents of the Iranians. It, do, it never really works that way. Particularly in Bahrain, you have to remember, Bahrain and also in Saudi, the Shia population there, these are not Khomeinists who are running around, despite what uh, Riyadh might say, or despite what some in Manama might say. Uh, many of these people are more independent in terms of who they view as their clerical leadership. Um, sometimes they like more radical types that are like in the Shiraziyin school. Sometimes they like Sistani, whatever. Um, so Iran, what they are attempting to do is co-opt that. They are trying to co-opt, and Ali makes the very valid point here. They, they co-opt this anger that comes with their distrust and dislike for the regime because of how they're treated. Uh, and they will put that in and say, well, you know what? Iran will address our interests. And what the Iranians do as a response is say, and by the way, why do you like weapons? Why don't you do an ideological training seminar? It'll be great. You'll really like it. Um, the whole ideological element to this is very, very important. I actually think it gets uh, passed over quite a bit in a lot of analysis. Um, I focus a lot on Iraqi Shia militias that are being formed. Not every one of them is a Khomeinist group. There's around 250 of them, including front groups that I've counted so far. Um, there's like a new one every other week. Um, but beyond that, you look at what they're, what they're doing, and in Iraq now, they feel secure enough to say, these groups are Wilayat al-Faqih. They are with Khamenei. They are with the Islamic Revolution in the region. The same thing in Syria. 
where there's a presence. The new Shia, uh, what uh, a few IRGC leaders are calling Syrian Hezbollah, uh, and they go by different names, they're subgroups. Uh, these groups are coming out and saying, we are firm believers in Wilayat al-Faqih. We listen to Khamenei. Uh, so when you see something like that, they feel far more secure in those environments. So of course it can just come right out. Um, in other environments, they're far more patient. They you mean other wait. environments like in yes. the Gulf, for instance, or uh, is yes. that what you mean? Yes, in the okay. Gulf. I mean, because remember, they want to pull in numbers. And they also want to make sure that people will, will say, but you know what? Maybe it's more nationalistic. This was the same thing that was done with Lebanese Hezbollah. Lebanese Hezbollah, right. uh, I mean, I love the propaganda music. I'm obsessed with this stuff. And it's interesting. In 2006, you'll notice there was the one, they had a song called Nasr uh, al-Arab. Uh, Sorry, I'm stuttering now. Nasr al-Arab al-Arab was a song about the victory of the Arabs. So they're playing the, the Arabist narrative on this one. Then they have another one where they talk about al-Arzat al-Lubnan. They're talking about the cedars of Lebanon. Magically, this comes in after they've had this destructive war in 2006. And now that we've switched to Syria, it's all about Saida Zainab, defending Saida Zainab. Well, who cares about Lebanon? Um, so they will shift the narrative whenever they need to, to pull in the, the you know, more people that they need. Uh, and I think when we're looking at Bahrain with more covert organizations, and they have to be covert, again, the government there has a very effective security apparatus with American assistance. Uh, so you don't always want to come out and show all your cards and say, hey, by the way, did you know that Khomeini was the best guy ever? <laughs> they, don't, they don't really want to do that. Um, but they also want to send the message. I mean, it's, it's a very no, covert it's, message. That, that is very interesting also how they apply different, you would use different messages in different communities, different societies. It's very interesting. Um, Mike, if you want to, I mean, if, if you're uh, interested in, in coming back to this question about revolution versus state, or what we're seeing here, or, or, or if you'd like to uh, pick up another thread. Well, I, I think it is both the revolution in the sense of they want, an, they, they explicitly say they want an international revolution in the Middle East in the sense that they want the American-dominated system that existed to disappear and a new system in which they are the, they are the central player um, to, to replace can, can, it. Can I just ask you something quickly? Um, uh, well, first of all, I should point out for, for the audience about uh, you know, the different articles that you've written especially the piece that you did for Mosaic, explaining the administration's, um, you know, uh, Iran policy. I guess if I can ask you to give some sort of, did the administration see that they were effectively tilting toward a revolution, or did they think that they were going to turn the revolution into a real state? I, I believe that... Uh um, yeah, so uh, I, I believe that the, it, that the Obama administration um, sees Iran as a pillar of, uh, of Middle East stability, as a, as a partner for Middle, Middle East stability, um, and, uh, uh, and is, understands that it is tilting toward Iran in Syria and tilting toward Iran in Iraq. I think there's a lot of evidence. That, uh, uh, Ali put forth the thesis that this is kind of, um, this tilt toward Iran is happening in a in a kind of fit of absent-mindedness uh, uh, on the part of the of the Americans, or the Americans like say just don't want to get involved in Syria, so they're hanging back, and and, and Iran is filling the vacuum. I actually I don't agree with with uh, Ali on, on on that point, but it's not we don't need to argue about it because it doesn't matter in a sense when we're trying to understand the dynamics in in the region whether the United States is um, you know is thinking about uh, uh, is thinking about the, the invasion from Mars, and this is happening, or whether it is actually thinking consciously about aligning with Iran, the same dynamic is, is taking place. Because as, as Ali so correctly points out, 
Iran has these institutions like the Quds Force. It has the ability to project its power exactly in the way that Philip is saying, by building up these proxies on the ground that look after, that look after its, its interests. And so from the point of view of everybody else in the region, all the traditional allies of the United States, U.S. policy is, is facilitating the expansion of this Iranian, this, this, the, the expansion of Iranian power throughout the region both directly, I mean, the Iranians are the Iranians intervene directly with the Russians as part of a military coalition to prop up Assad. They're also using proxies. We're about we're going to have implementation day on the nuclear deal with probably this weekend. Exactly what day is going to be is not clear, but it could be as early as Saturday or Sunday. Implementation day being the moment when we start releasing uh, 100 to 150 billion dollars to the Iranians. That when you're sitting in Saudi Arabia or in Israel and you see these, the proliferation of these, of these Iranian proxies around the region, and then you see that the United States is about to drop $150 billion on the, uh, on the Iranians, it looks like the U.S. is consciously tilting toward Iran. Maybe it's, maybe, maybe, maybe it's not. I actually do believe, though, that it is. They have, the Iranians play this game, which, I, which, which, um, which Ali uh, uh, described, uh, I think, very accurately, of being both the arsonist and the fireman. Right, the 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 Quds Force, the, the the IRGC, they go out and they stir up problems, um, and then uh, and then Zarif comes in and says, "Oh, that's the extremists, and I'm the moderate." And you, if you work with me, and and they're very talented, the, uh, the Zarif, at um, in sitting behind the scenes with Amer behind closed doors with Kerry and with the Americans, and saying. You know, we understand each other. You have interests, we have interests, we have an, over, over, uh, an overlapping interest. And they present themselves to the, to the Americans as consummate players of realpolitik. Uh, they say we have overlapping interests, we can cut a deal, right? And that's what the Americans believe that they are, uh, they believe that they are domesticating the Iranians that they are showing them that, we, that, that a partnership is possible. And in doing so, they're elevating those more pragmatic and defensive elements in, 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 in Iranian society. Um, it's, it's, it's a complete, uh, um, uh, it's a fiasco, uh, basically. What's, what's amazing to me, and I'll just I'll stop on this point, is that everything that happens in the Middle East, every time something happens where there's some kind of outrageous provocation from the, uh, the Iranians, we either ignore it or we, or, we, or we put a ridiculous interpretation on it. Like, uh, for example, right now, Hezbollah, together with the Iranians, are starving the, the, the citizens, uh, the, the inhabitants of Madaya in Syria. This is 20 to 30,000 people are starving to death. This is a policy of the Assad regime, a policy of Iran, right? This, is go this was going on while the Saudis executed Nimr al-Nimr. Which, which issue did we decide was a, a sectarian provocation? It was the Saudi execution and not the starvation of 20 to 30,000 uh, uh, 20 30,000 people, which every Sunni in the region sees as a sectarian provocation, of, uh, uh, of, of course. Uh, and n nobody in the American media, I should say nobody, but very few people in the American media are, uh, uh, are even aware of the perception of people in the region about this and, re and reporting on it. And the, the same thing with the sailors, right? Uh, Ali described very accurately how the, the IRGC Navy put out the, the message very clearly to everyone in the region that we are in charge here. We have the last say on what, uh, uh, on what goes on. Our White House decided to, 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 to pitch it as tremendous diplomatic victory because we got these hostages released within, uh, uh, with, within hours. The, the, the message that the IRGC was sending to the rest of the region barely got reported on here. And our news, our news media 
Our news media just repeats the, the, repeats the talking points of uh, John Kerry as if it's a deep analysis of what happened without any suggestion that there's another way of seeing this. Well, then, then let me ask. Thanks, Mike. Ali, so is this the incorrect interpretation? Are you telling me that the, uh, the White House has not really succeeded in empowering moderates? Will it take more time? Will it never happen? What's your, what's your understanding of this? Well, I, I do believe that counting on a uh, Rouhani uh, victory for the parliamentary elections in, in, in February uh. is, is a mistake. What we are most likely to uh. see is that the Supreme Leader is going to block and disqualify many of the people from mm. the Rouhani network to run for parliament and to run for assembly of experts. Do you think, will he disqualify Rouhani as well? Uh, or, or, or? Probably not Rouhani himself, but uh. his network. So okay. what, he, what we will see is Rouhani being an isolated president uh. who has uh, the entire <coughs> parliament against him and the body uh, which is called the assembly of experts, you know, the body which is going to appoint the next you know, supreme leader is also going to be dominated mm. by uh, the regime loyalists. Uh, and then you have uh, the technocrats just, you know, going, going back into the shadows. Uh, who is, by the way, going to benefit from, 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 from the money uh, which is now being released uh, because of the sanctions relief? The most likely scenario is that the money is going to be transferred to the economic business empire of the Revolutionary Guards. The largest contractor in Iran is Khatam al construction base. That mm. base is going to get the contracts. It's not going to be the private sector. Mr. Rafsanjani, former president, and Mr. Rouhani, they are arguing that if you give us the money, we can empower the middle class. We can make the private sector come back into, in, 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 into Iranian economy. But in reality, the private sector, more likely than not, is going to become subcontractors to the revolutionary guards. In reality, you can in actually uh, strengthen the IRGC control with, with the business elites of Iran. So, so that calculation from the White House, I think, has been completely wrong. Right. Well, let's, let's um, I mean, this is the way that the White House speaks about it publicly, right? Because they, you would look very, um, you would look very strange if you said, we don't care about empowering the moderates. We're dealing with the extremists. These are the hard men around the region. As, uh, as the president apparently said, told to a number of Gulf Arab officials uh, at Camp David in May, he was, uh, spoke approving, approvingly of the Quds Force and Qasem Soleimani, that these guys get things done around the region. So you wouldn't really be able to speak publicly, uh, say, look, we've done a deal with the extremists. But in fact, that's kind of what's happened, and a nuclear agreement a nuclear agreement with the regime locks in the IRGC, right? If that's who's in control of the weapon, they've been empowered. Um, Mike, you, you and I have spoken about this a bit. I mean, well, I, do I, you think that they believe that? I mean, do they actually believe they're empowering moderates? Or are, are they much more uh, rail politics, like, we made a deal with the extremists, deal with it? I, I believe both. Uh, I believe that um, it's, it's a deep... It's, it's a deep aspect of American thinking about international politics um, to believe in the, the gradual uh, moderating influence of international markets. Uh, there's a model they have in their head, and the model is China, right? Uh, the, 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 Chinese are, the Chinese are our rivals. They're building up, up their military, but we also have this, uh, this economic uh, uh, interdependency 
Um, and so we have changed, the, 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 in, our, in, in, in the minds of the Obama administration, we have changed the calculus in Beijing about whether, how, much it's, how much it's worthwhile to challenge the United States because there are so many economic uh, variables that are, so, so many economic interests that are hanging in the balance for the Chinese. They want to create conditions that will, in, in Iran, that will bring about the same kind of change of calculus. They understand that in the short, they won't admit it, they understand that in the short term it's going to lead to a strengthening of, of some of the more hardline elements, but that uh, over time, this will, this, that once this money starts penetrating and there's this interdependency, this will change the, uh, the calculation. And plus they think, they think that the Iranian, there's a, there are two interpretations of Iran in, the, uh, in, in Washington. Um, there's one that sees Iran as an aggressive, revolutionary power, like I see it, that, that wants to overturn the American order. And there's another one that says, no, 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 that is rhetoric. That's revolutionary rhetoric left over from the revolution of 1979, but nobody in Iran really believes that anymore. The, the, the system was set up with that rhetoric, so they have to pay, they have to pay lip service to it. But in actual, um, in actual fact, they are pragmatic actors. And the, President Obama has said this in a number of interviews. They're pragmatic, right? We can cut a deal with them. And that's, that's what he's banking on in the end. I, I, I mean, Ali, is the uh, IRGC, are they pragmatic? Have they lost their... Have they lost their taste for revolution? Uh, well, you know, the revolution and revolutionary rhetoric and behavior serves their interests, their corporate interests. The big difference between Iran and China, of course, is that when President Nixon you know, made the deal with Chairman Mao, uh, the Communist Party was firmly in, in power. It was a single-party system. It still is a single-party system. And the People's Liberation Army was under total political control. Mm. In the Iranian case, if there is a one-party system, the, the one party is the party of the Revolutionary Guards. It's not the civilian politicians. Mm. So it serves the interests of the Revolutionary Guards to be revolutionary, not only to pay lip service to ideology, but also to practice it every once in a while. But whenever <laughs> the threats from outside or the threat from inside, let's say economic meltdown, really is uh, uh, facing uh, the, the, the elites of the Revolutionary Guards, they do engage in pragmatic deeds to secure their survivals. So the Iranian system is not Nazi Germany in 1945. It's not a suicidal regime, mm. but it is highly ideological. And, and, and the Revolutionary Guards is ideological because it serves their interests. Huh. Um, let's, uh, let's just uh, go through a, 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 not, to, uh, not to deliberate too long, but what do you think will happen next? Philip, I mean, what is, what is the regime likely to do next in the Persian Gulf? Well, I, like I said before, I think we're on kind of this low burn trajectory until they want to turn up the flame. Uh, right now, they're building the militant groups that they would possibly need in the future. Some of them are being dismantled. Um, l the l let me ask you, what would turning up the flame look like? What does that mean? I mean, do they have, uh, do they have an interest, an investment in actually getting the Persian Gulf and the region very hot right now? Or do they just want to, do they just like this, like throwing matches, throwing matches at the Persian Gulf every once in a while, getting people a little upset, then walking it back? So I, I want to, yeah, I, I, well, I, I want to ask all of you what you, think, what you think is likely to happen next. Again, not, 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 not predicting a date and event, but it's like, you know, what, what will the next few months, what will the next year with Obama's presidency look like? 
like I'll, I'll go first, I guess. Yeah, yeah, please. Um, yeah. I, I think for starters, it is going to be throwing matches. Right. Um, and again, you have to look at this also from a strategic level and from their messaging angles too. A lot of these Bahraini militant groups have been expressing support for Ansar Allah. Those are the Houthis in Yemen. They've been expressing their support for groups like Qatab Hezbollah, uh, which is in Iraq. So they're right now forming kind of the rhetorical and that, that uh, narrative bubble you know, that the Islamic resistance is growing. Um, but beyond that, the attacks that they're doing, and it's in good measure due to security operations that have gone on in both Saudi Arabia and also Bahrain, uh, they're not, I mean, they haven't been all that effective, but they, I mean, they're still continuing, but it's that low burn. The low burn is effective for now. Um, I mean, I, I couldn't give you a good time for when they might want to turn it up. Yeah, but again, no, I, I, again, like that, I'm, I'm not asking you to, uh, but, to, but almost to randomly, Kreskin this out. But, but, yeah, but almost randomly, because I, I like to look at timing and when certain yeah. things happen. Um, it was interesting that Surayya Mukhtar and a lot of these other uh, groups privately were sending messages, anti-American threats. They were going to target a Starbucks. They were going to target a Chili's. Uh, they were going to attack uh, the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Uh, they were you know, going to do this, that, and the other thing. Fire rockets at uh, you know, Bahraini, uh, the uh, U.S. naval base in Jufair. Um But those didn't really coincide with a big push by the Americans in the region, not even really with negotiations. Uh, so I think sometimes you, know, you might have where they come out and just you know, want to press the button a little bit oh. and say, all right, well, let's see how they react to this. Um, what worries me, though, is as the United States you know, pulls out of this region more, um, and again, we're in the last year of the Obama administration, and this is kind of the trajectory of where it's going. Um, if they feel emboldened, uh, and I think that may be a possibility with what's going on in Iraq and what's also mm -hmm. going on in Syria, despite the fact that you know, ground battles are not all that great for them right now, um, but if they do feel emboldened, they might try to do something a little bit more spectacular. Huh. Um, but again, I mean, I think that we are on this low burn trajectory, and they'll just keep it like that until they really want to start things up. And I'm quite sure, you know, there are elements on the ground that are in, you know, that are conversing with IRGC that say, well, you know, we really need to do it now, and they're just saying, mm, not yet. Hmm. You know, maybe we negotiated it, and we will uh, approach this in, in a way that. Uh, you know, not to uh, recycle this term, will be a little bit more pragmatic about our revolutionary militarism. Uh, I mean, I, again, I don't. I, I think <laughs> just because nice you have, yeah. but but just because you have a revolutionary mindset, it doesn't mean you can't pursue it pragmatically. And I think a lot of people get confused with that because they go, well, hey, they're pragmatic actors, so that's all good. Um, but when you have revolutionary actors like this, okay, maybe we need to be a little bit more patient with it. Again, a big term for the Iranians and for the Islamic Revolution is the sabrin, the patient ones, the, you know, the patient. Hmm. And they're very, very big on pushing you know, sabr, patience, when it comes to launching their revolutionary I'm goals. I'm Ali, if you'd like well, to... Keeping the region in a permanent state of low-intensity crisis has huh. served the interest of the Revolutionary Guards in the past, and it will serve the interest of the Revolutionary Guards in, in the near future and also, you know, further ahead. So I, I do believe it's going to continue. And uh, most unfortunately, uh, I see that uh, some Sunni leaders are playing into the hands of the Revolutionary Guards by keeping somebody like Sheikh, Sheikh Ali Salman uh, detained, imprisoned in Bahrain, and there is no even, not even a sentence against him. Uh, we see uh, not only beheading of Sheikh Nemr, I also heard that he was also crucified, you know, in Saudi Arabia. So if these are the policies of some Sunni leaders, it is hardly surprising that the Revolutionary Guards and some, you know, radical leaders in Iran and, 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 and the entire revolutionary elites in the Islamic Republic have an easier time persuading those uh, Shia people to follow the path of the Iranian Revolution. Can I ask you why? Um, 
why why is it in the interest of the um, of the revolution of the Islamic Republic to keep the uh, to keep the region in a state of at least low intensity uh, conflict and anxiety? <laughs> why, why does that? Why are they an anti-status quo power? Is so, it about the United States or uh, no? In order to uh, increase and and, and spread uh, the influence of the Islamic Republic, in order to operate more freely, you you need a state of crisis. If if the neighbors of the Islamic Republic are well-ordered societies in which there is no political crisis, there is no social upheaval, there is no suppression of the, the minorities, then the Revolutionary Guards has much more difficult times operating in those environments. This is why the Revolutionary Guards was not happy with the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. They also wanted a state of crisis in Iraq so they could mm. replace the old order with their own people coming in so that the moderate Shia Iraqis would not be part of the power structure in Iraq so that mm. the moderate Saudi Shia do not cooperate with the Saudi regime. So a state of permanent crisis helps them to attract the support of those Shia populations. Yeah. Interesting. Mike, what do you, uh, again, without asking you to use your crystal ball, though feel free if you'd like, but what are the things that you see, that you see happening over the next year in the, uh, in the Gulf region? Let, let, let me just start by uh, emphasizing how much I agree with what, uh, with what Alij said, and um, maybe we can draw a conclusion from this. Um, and that is that I, I do believe that the Obama administration, it's looking at this, this mess, you know, stretching from Baghdad to Beirut, uh, and it looks over at Tehran and it sees a, a, a big, stable country that behind closed doors talks the language of regional stability to it, and it thinks, wow, if we can just incorporate them, uh, the, the Iranians into the security architecture, then they will work with us to, sta to stabilize the region. And what Ali just said is they don't have an interest in stability. Um, we don't have to call them necessarily revolutionary. They don't have an interest in, st in stability. I mean, the way to think of them um, is not as pillars of stability, but as, um, uh, as uh, actors who are uh, carrying out um, a... Um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm missing the word. What do you call it with the mafia when they offer you protection? It's a protection racket, right? They develop instruments to, the, to, to, to blow things up, and they tell you, if you work with us, we won't blow it up. And, uh, uh, and, if, you, and if you don't work with us, we'll blow stuff up. That's how they, that's how they operate. They don't, have, they don't have the money. They don't have the political skill. They don't have the institutions to actually work to stabilize any of these regions. And we've, we've sold ourselves a bill of goods, and we've convinced ourselves that they do. They don't. They're just a, well, it's a protection mean, I, racket. You know, I don't want to move too far, uh, too far from the subject at hand, but I believe that one of the arguments that the administration would make, again, quietly, um, but about Syria, would be to say, look, we don't like uh, Assad. He's not a good guy. But the fact is, without him, there's going to be even more chaos. So we're going to have to work with, right? I mean, because well, Secretary Kerry, I mean, that's why the Iranians and that's why the Russians have been invited to, uh, <laughs> to negotiate over Syria's future. So they, well, they certainly do believe that it's a stable or a potentially stabilizing influence in different Yeah, but different look what they, they, that's again we sold ourselves a bill of goods there, right? The you they would, that, and they would we, argue but their argument is what the problem is. Let once, me okay. let me I'll I'll, I'll, okay. I'll lay it out. I understand the argument they're making but it's right. false because the, the what is our our number let's say our number one interest uh, is is to defeat ISIS, right? I actually think our number one interest is actually to contain Iran, and ISIS is number two. But let's say it's for the sake of discussion that, which is how I think the Obama administration looks at it, ISIS is the strategic threat. 
We can't defeat ISIS unless we have Sunni allies on the ground who can help us to take and hold, that's the important part, these, uh, these areas that ISIS now, now controls. When we are in alignment with Iran in, in Iraq, when we're, and, with the, and with the Shiite militias in, in, in Iraq, when we're in alignment with Russia and Assad in, 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 in Syria, we alienate all of those, uh, we alienate the Sunnis on the ground. What, are they, what is Assad actually doing in Syria? And what are the Russians actually doing? They are not attacking ISIS. They are starving right. men, women, and children. That's what they're, they're doing. They're dropping chemical weapons on them. Um, they're, they're going after the opposition, opposition elements that the, on, that the United States itself has trained. Right? So on the day that the Russians started, started bombing, that's during the, the, the UN General Assembly meeting in September, the Russians bombed, consciously bombed elements that the U.S. trained. What was the U.S. response to this? Oh, uh, John Kerry said, I'm going to meet with, uh, I, he didn't say I'm going to, he met with, uh, with, the, uh, with the Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov and started talking about deconflicting. That sends a message to all America's allies in the region that we're not going to back up the, 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 the Sunnis on the ground that we had designated previously as our, uh, a, 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 as our allies. So what the consequence is, we are not going to achieve and I can say this very confidently, we're not going to achieve our strategic goal of stabilizing that region from Baghdad to Beirut. And I don't even think we're going to defeat, uh, we're, we're going to defeat ISIS. Because all of these countries, it's not that Saudi Arabia wants ISIS there or that Turkey wants ISIS there. It's that the alternative to ISIS that the United States is offering these states is an Iranian-dominated order. And that they, that they absolutely do not want. So if the choice is an Iranian-dominated order or, 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 or muddling through with this horrible ISIS, they're going to muddle through with this horrible ISIS. And that's why we have, you know, President Obama brags that he has a 65-member coalition with the most powerful countries in the world working to defeat ISIS for a year now. Uh, this is 20 or 30,000 nasty guys with pickup trucks against the most powerful countries in the world. And we don't have a significant victory to, to, uh, to show for it. And why? Because we don't have, we don't have a, a, a political vision for the region that is attractive to any of the major actors in the region that we used to call our allies. Um, let me, let's just go through one more. I just want to ask uh, the, the three of you one more question before I, I am going to open up for some questions from the, uh, from the audience. Um, the first thing I want to ask you, Ali is going to come back to something that you were speaking about before regarding some of the, um, regarding some of the Gulf uh, the Gulf states and their treatment of the, um, you know, of their Shiite communities. Look, is there a way, I, I, I believe that the administration has uh, in many ways handled it incorrectly, has spoken too much about sectarianism, has spoken too much about Sunni uh, and Shia, and instead it should see it the way that American foreign policymakers have most successfully seen the Middle East, which is in terms of strategic interest rather than in terms of sect. Right, and so we're thinking, Saudi Arabia, problematic, but an ally. Uh, Iran, uh, revolutionary regime, instead of Sunni power, Shia power. Is there a way right now, given the way the region's going, not to put it, not to put it on uh, on the Gulf states alone, but is there a way to uh, to take away some of the sectarian tension, even to reduce the level of the the way that we talk about it here in the United States, which is, I think, it's not helpful. You know, the, the realist argument, you know, I like it very much. But the stability of the states, stability of U.S. allies is also depending on how they treat their citizens. 
And that was, by the way, one of the reasons that uh, the Shah's regime collapsed in 1979. Uh, the problem with the Saudis and many other Sunni regimes is not that they are not modernizers. They are actually enlightened. They are modernizers. They have been modernizing the societies extremely fast. Mm. But the process of modernization has not had a parallel process of providing the citizenry with responsibilities, with mm. powers to control the government of their own. In other words, a process of democratization. This is why the Shah's government collapsed in 1979. And unfortunately, we see similar tendencies all over the Middle East. This is, after all, what the Arab Spring was all about. Uh, so the realist argument, of course, makes sense. But we also should pay uh, attention to the dyn dynamics of uh, the regimes inside the, 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 oh, the, the, the I, states. I, I should say, no, I, I, I certainly agree with that. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm thinking specifically about... Uh, speci specifically about yeah, exactly like that. If we can take that language away from there... Again, not just like saying, well, we're just going to deal with them because they're an ally. It's like, look, you're an ally, but we're a little worried that you're doing this and that. I mean, this is this, it's a, a classical part of, uh, of U.S. foreign policy that I think is a good idea. Again, like, how do we move away from the sectarian language? But, you know, you, you need to promote democracy rather than talking about uh, different sects because it's also Sunni citizens who, who are being uh, persecuted by the state. Bloggers who make some political comments in Saudi Arabia, drawn, they're, they're, they're thrown into prison. They're Sunnis, they're not Shia. Uh, so there, there, there is issues with, with, with suppression of freedom of religion. Those issues make U.S. allies much weaker. And these are good allies. They want to modernize their societies, but they are not liberalizing their society. And that process, the pro parallel process, that is creating huge problems for them. And mm. in, in, in the longer term, it's also a problem for the U.S. because they are good allies. Right. That is, you know, right. one of the, okay. the things that one should uh, emphasize. Not the sectarian nature of the, 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 the issues, but, but the issue of human rights and democratization. Philip, do you want to... Uh... Uh, there's a few ways I can go with this. I mean, yeah. I, I think both actors in the region, with how they're projecting, right. uh, they are playing the sectarian message, whether we like oh. it or not. Right. Uh, and I think if we're talking about how the press handles it, well... Uh, unfortunately, with I'm, 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 yeah. you, I mean, in the regional press or, or, or our e even press? Even our press. I'm, I'm, okay, I'm, I mean, I'm not so concerned about that. Uh, I am concerned about the way the administration addresses it in many ways. Mm. But I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to, uh, to cut you off to, to defend my, uh, my colleagues in the, in the press. But um, <laughs> Well, I, I promise I'm not, it's not going to be a bad attack. Okay. Right. Um, I mean, I, unfortunately, when it comes to journalism, you know, there's a lot of repetition that happens. Because people want a narrative and it's easier to convey. I mean, if you have to produce an 850-word article and you're having, you have to do this for some woman who's living in Denver who's just going to work every day, how else are you going to describe it? It's very hard to get in with all the nice little nuances that are going on. And also, you know, put this in, in the bigger picture and say, oh, and by the way, it's a Saudi versus you know, Iranian thing and here's the revolutionary regime here on this end. Um, and I think also those two entities are promoting their own sectarian interests and kind of promoting that message anyway. Uh, and I think now what we're seeing with the region, I mean, with the Iranians, and this is something that I followed very closely. I mean, I wrote the, the monograph for Washington Institute about the Shia Jihad in Syria, how Iran essentially manufactured this Shia Jihad as if they were defending a holy shrine from American and Israeli-backed takfiriyin. Um, you know, when you have this, it's very hard to pull it back when it starts to embed itself within the populace. I mean, even these crazy anti-American conspiracies that they've thrown out in Iraq that say America's supplying IS, uh, the, the so-called Islamic State, with supplies. This is what they're doing. 
Uh, and by the way, Qatab Hezbollah, go out with an essay, you know, with, uh, with one of your man pads and parade around with it. And this will send a message to the populace. It's very, very hard to escape from those, those binds. And I think a lot of it, and this is coming from the administration too, I think a lot of it is a response to that because when you're kind of stuck in analysis paralysis, how do we handle it and how do we right. also address it to the American people? Well, <laughs> here's the easiest and most uh, acceptable, uh, acceptable kind of line. And when you're dealing with entities, particularly the Iranians, who know how to craft a narrative, Boy, do they know how to do it. Boy, do they know how to get the messages out. Even when it comes, I was talking to Ali earlier about how they release martyrdom uh, information. I mean, the timing of it. it. Everything is very, very well thought out. And I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say, well, we should you know, have another government department that can handle this. But I, I think it needs a little bit more foresight here from a lot of the analysts and a lot of the people handling it. Well, how are they presenting it and what's our counter? Where are we just going to accept their message and just you know roll with it? Um, I mean, I, I don't really think that's always the best idea. Well, that was something that Mike worked on when he worked in the Bush administration. Can you? I, mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's necessarily a subject you want to pick up. Countering uh, how the government counters the message, but I guess like, is there a way again just to take down the level of, of sectarian discourse in the region? It's it's very bad for the region. It empowers bad actors, whether it's the Islamic Republic or the Islamic State. Um, I, I don't think that we can, um, that there's any way we can avoid sectarianism, but I don't think that we should um, base our strategy on it. I mean, you have to be aware, uh, I think the starting point for a sound American approach to the region is to focus on states, not sect, but, it, but, you, but, but you, you have to be aware of the, of the sectarian issues. If you're not, I mean, you'll, 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 make bad, you'll make bad policy. I mean, effectively what we're doing right now in, 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 in the United States, everyone would understand, you know, if we had, uh, if, if we had uh, um, riots in, uh, in, in Harlem and, and the United States worked together with the Ku Klux Klan to try to stabilize Harlem, and then we said to the, we said to the people of Harlem, listen, we're, uh, we're, we all have an interest in stability here, right? That's not going to work, right? And that's effectively what we're, what we're doing. We're, we're, we're aligning ourselves with the, with, the, with, with, a, with the elements that are starving Sunnis in Syria and then getting angry with the Saudis when they don't like it, right? It's, uh, um, um, it's ridiculous. And we have defined sectarianism in the, in the public discourse of the U.S. government. Sectarianism is, is Sunni sectarianism, no. not Shiite sectarianism. There's been no discussion. Uh, public discussion at all, and, and very little awareness of what Philip was describing as the Shiite jihad, mm. right? And, and which is which is which is a sectarianism, but it's also the spread of Iranian government influence. When the huh. when when they create these when they create these um, uh, these militias, they, they they arm them, they train them, they equip them, they offer them ideological support. <laughs> And as Philip said, they, 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 they indoctrinate them in the doctrine of Vilayata Faqih. The Faqih is, the, the, the Vilayata Faqih means, ultimately what it means practically is submission to Khamenei in, in Tehran. So what they're supposed to do is follow the orders given to them by, by, uh, by Tehran. It's very much like the, the common turn in the days of the, of, the, of, the Soviet, of the Soviet Union. So the job of the United States in that context, if it wants to tamp down sectarianism, is to teach geography to Iran. And it teaches it very simply. And there's, there's Iran and not Iran. And Iran can have its forces in Iran, but in not, in not Iran. So Iraq, not Iran. 
Syria, not Iran. <laughs> Lebanon, not Iran. So let's not talk about it as sectarianism. Let's right, just talk okay. about geography class. All right, that's a very nice way to put it. Um, let's open it up to some questions from the audience. Um, wow, okay, great. If um, we have uh, at least one microphone, maybe two circulating. So you can just wait for the uh, microphone to get to you. Um, I'm sorry, the gentleman here in the, in the blue shirt, if you can just wait for the microphone. Well, the last hour's talk has been about Iran, and uh, we've sort of neglected Saudi Arabia. And, and the, the question is, is, is the Saudi regime uh, strong enough, or is it too brittle to confront an Iran? Michael, would you like to? Uh, uh, the the Saudis are in a they're in a difficult situation, right? The the uh, we see that they have uh, declining oil prices, right? Um, they've taken on a number of uh, they've taken on a number of projects, including the intervention in Yemen and so forth, which are which are costly and have no end uh, uh, no no end in sight. Um, but uh, uh, the uh, the the Saudis are not. Going to roll over, and hand and hand the region to the Iranians, and that's the signal that they are trying to send us, very, 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 very clearly that they are going to they are going to fight wherever they have the resources and the ability to counter the uh, this 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 rising Iranian uh, uh, Iranian power. So um, uh, how they're going to deploy those resources exactly is uh, is unclear. But the idea that they're just going to they're just going to fold up and look after Saudi Arabia alone and have no Interest in what happens in Syria or neighboring Iraq and so on, I think is uh, um, uh, is w w would I think it would be a mistake to to assume that. Philip, do you want to? I mean, you spent time and uh, yeah. you have a pretty clear sense of their some of their capabilities anyway. W what worries me is the longer term, and I, I think uh, Mike was touching on this a little bit. Um, where do they put those resources? If we're looking at Yemen, it's not simply with the F-15s that are bombing uh, Ansar Allah. Um, what happens if they say, well, AQAP, Al-Qaeda, in the Arabian Peninsula, you know, they've executed a bunch of them, but they're an effective fighting force against uh, Ansar Allah. Uh, the same thing happens in Syria. Well, what happens with that? You had Jaysh uh, al-Fatih, which had what? Jabhat al-Nusra, which is Syrian Al-Qaeda in there. And you know, the Saudis and a number of other uh, Gulf states were facilitating that. When we leave a vacuum, the vacuum needs to get filled. And because of this, they're going to look for actors that are strong, that know how to project and know how to get things done and also kill their enemies. And if it's not going to be the United States with our you know, happy moderation and everything else, well, you know what? We might as well turn to them because they know how to kill Iranians. Um, then what's, I guess, the second order that comes from there? Again, Al-Qaeda does not like the United States. Um, if they feel like they've been completely abandoned, and you know, I'm trying to go back to your question, is the regime itself in, in Riyadh, is it brittle? I don't think it's brittle. I think they are scared out of their minds. We had a very good security relationship with them for decades. And now, what's happening? It's collapsing from, with, you know, from within. I, I mean, I've been to so many meetings in the Gulf where you'll run into policymakers, and they'll just say, they screwed us. We're no longer friends, you know, they're no longer our friends anymore. And what's the end result from that? You know, you share a cigarette outside, and you ask them, where do you think you go from there? I don't know. I mean, we have to build up our own forces. Mm-hmm. Well, those don't always do so well. They know this. They know this. And I, I think it's that whole second order of what happens next, and then what's also the, the end effect for the United States. Because they're not really, I mean, they're, they're going to be less considerate about the American point of view 
the, the more we pull out. They're going to be more worried about, well, what's going to happen to Saudi? They've just launched, the, the, the Houthis have just launched another scud into Saudi Arabia. Well, you know what? Fine. We're going to back these guys because they get the job done. And the Americans, you know, they want to cut deals elsewhere. Uh, that's something that really, really worries me. And it's not as if, and I've talked to a lot of different Saudi policymakers, it's not as if they, they are saying, yeah, Al-Qaeda is the best. It's cool. And we really like that. And we really love what happened on 9-11. They're not. But when you're presented with certain options and, you know, you're trying to pick the worst ones, uh, I worry that, you know, unfortunately they, they may come to that decision if they feel pushed into the corner enough by the Iranians and maybe feel that they've been completely uh, left alone by the United States. Mike, did you want to follow up on something? I thought that you... Yeah, sorry, I, I just wanted to make one, one more point. And uh, I, I agree with everything that, that uh, Philip just said. And um, I, I just want to say that I think the Washington's attitude right now is to point out some of the hardships that the Saudis are saying and to hector the Saudis uh, and to suggest that, uh, uh, that they don't understand their own interests and that they're going down a bad path and that bad things are going to happen to them if they continue. And I guess I would, the, the two points I would make to that are, number one, they have, Iran is an existential threat to Saudi Arabia. Uh, uh, it is. It's a mistake to think that it's, that it's not. Iran would love to crack up Saudi Arabia. Iran would love to take Mecca and Medina if it could. Uh, so uh, we, better, we, 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 should, we should keep that in mind uh, because the, the Saudis see an existential threat and they're going to act to try to prevent it. If they, if they fail at that, if they fail at that, we, 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 would ha we will then have the crack up of Saudi Arabia. And what will the United States do then? Will the United States sit back and do nothing and let, let, and, 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 and let the chaos, the, you know, let, let chaos ensue? Or will the United States feel compelled to send, in, uh, to send in troops? We ought to be thinking about that now, right? And, and, and thinking about that doesn't mean hectoring the Saudis. It means developing a vision of regional order that would, that would prevent some of these, the Saudis from feeling compelled to take some of these actions that we think are deleterious to our interests. Thanks, Mike. Um, I wanted to call on actually a, a colleague here at, uh, at Hudson, Bill Ludi, who actually has, uh, we spoke before, and he has a lot of uh, a lot of information about the um, about the uh, detainment detaining the uh, ten American sailors. Uh, Bill uh, Bill was in the Navy, and so uh, Bill understands the details on it. So if you can hand a uh, a microphone uh, right around here, in the room. Thanks. No, right the gentleman right there. That's bad. Thanks. Thank you, Bill. Yeah. Thanks, Lee. Um, as Lee said, I'm Bill Ludi here at Hudson Institute, also a uh, former career naval officer. And I have a, a question, a general question for the panel about the administration's response to the seizure of the two riverine boats and our 10 uh, sailors. Right. There appears to be considerable unhappiness um, in the military, especially in the Navy, in the way that the administration is handling their response to the detention of our, our sailors. Given the Secretary of Defense has confirmed that the two riverine boats um, conducted a had a navigation error and went into Iranian waters, but it appears the seizure by the Iranians violates uh, you know several, if two or three, uh, well-established principles of international and maritime law. The first one being, of course, innocent passage, mm -hmm. where ships of all states. Um, whether coastal or landlocked, um, have the right of innocent passage through territorial waters. Um, so in this case, the U.S. Riverine boats were headed from Kuwait to Bahrain to change their uh, command base. Um, and irrespective of the navigation error that the Secretary of Defense has admitted to, 
um, they were conducting innocent passage. Um, a normal country would have rendered assistance at sea, instructed them to leave, and, and sent them on their way. The, the second principle um, that naval commanders rely on, and I relied on when I was um, commanding a ship in the Gulf, is the principle of sovereign immunity of warships. Um, sovereign immune naval vessels are not subject to search, seizure, or detention of the crew. And again, even in traveling in, uh, even in port or in territorial waters. So again, a normal country would have rendered assistance, instructed them to leave. And the third principle, while we're not technically at war with Iran, are the G 1949 Geneva Conventions and the Protocol 1 and 2 of 1977, which clearly prohibit um, the filming, right. the photographing, or otherwise using videotaped or audiotaped confessions or apologies um, for propaganda purposes. And this, if not a literal violation of the law, is certainly um, a violation of the spirit of those uh, conventions. I was just going to say, just very quickly, I, I believe that Tony Blair, in 2007, when the Iranians took uh, British, British sailors for 13 days, yeah. uh, uh, then Prime Minister Blair made the exact same case, that it was a violation of Geneva. Right. But my, my question here, I, I think, given those three long-held principles of international and maritime law. Um, these rules are extremely important to U.S. naval commanders. I mean, they're, they're vital to the safety of their crews, to the safety and the efficiency of their operations, and U.S. naval commanders rely on the, um, the, the, the enforcement and adherence to these rules. So my question is, why do you think the administration hasn't even touched or, or formally protest, or even thrown a marshmallow uh, out towards the uh, to the Iranians. What, what's your view, yeah. Mike? Would you like to? Um, sure, sure, I'm sure Ali has. Thanks, to say thanks as well. very much. I, they, the, the implementation day, the nuclear deal is about to go into force within a couple of days here, and you can you you, you can rest assured that any discussion in the White House or the State Department when this thing broke was, oh no, this might endanger the Iran deal the nuclear deal, and we got to make sure to tamp everything down in order for this deal to go through. The question we should have been asked, we should have asked ourselves, or the, the, was not, how come the Iranians released those sailors so quickly compared to other incidents? Because the, the, the answer to that is they want their $150 billion, right? It's not because <laughs> there's this fantastic channel between Zarif and Kerry. It's because they want their $150 billion. So the question then becomes, with the $150 billion hanging in the balance, how come they risked taking these, this, how come they, they put that at, at, at risk? And I think the answer is, is twofold. Number one, it's that we have shown them time and time again that we will not, we are, we are so hell-bent on achieving that nuclear deal that we will not take any kind of uh, retaliatory action. Um, and number two, it's the, uh, it's the, uh, the revolutionary guards showing Iranians, everybody in the region, and us that they are in charge. And that's, that's the message that we all should have taken away from this thing, is that even with $150 billion within days of release, right, they still went ahead and behaved like this. If you think that they're, that they're going to moderate over the next six months, then I think you're mistaken. My, yeah. my, um, I'll, I'll just give my, my own uh, opinion on this quickly. I, I entirely agree with Mike that it has to do with protecting the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. That's why they don't want to act. But I think there's another reason as well. I do believe that, um, I mean, Mike and I have spoken about this as well, that the president believes that 
his role is to uh, have extricated uh, the United States from the Middle East, not to overcommit us again to more turmoil. And I believe that the president sees it. Whenever there's an Iranian provocation, he, he, turns, uh, he turns the other cheek. He says, these guys are not going to get the United States involved in another war. Okay, I know they're doing bad stuff, but I'm not going to take the bait because this will be a really bad thing. Of course, the problem is, is that I think that that, um, I think that, that does encourage bad behavior. Exactly. Yes. So that would yeah. be. Yeah. Uh, and actually, Bill, I'm just going to ask you to round this off. If you can uh, say, in, 19, in 1988, how did the Reagan administration check um, uh, aggressive Iranian actions? Not to draw too close a parallel, but I was on the USS Enterprise arrowing at the time, and when the Iranians uh, were laying mines in international waters in the Persian Gulf, President Reagan ordered us in our air wing to um, sink two um, Iranian major combatants, the Sabalan and the Sahand, and uh, that's how we responded. Thanks. Thanks very much, Bill. There's a question uh, in back, the gentleman in the yellow shirt right back there. <laughs> the Thanks, Mario. Thanks. Um, so I have a question just picking up on something Can that... Can you stand up, though? Just yeah, sure. Mario Loyola. I have a question Thanks, on picking up on something that uh, Mike alluded to a couple different times. I is there a vision, a realistic vision of, for restoring stability in the Middle East that our allies in the region can, can really commit themselves to that doesn't require reversing the extension of her Iranian hegemony over the Shiite part of Iraq? And, and if... And if we do have to reverse the extension of Iranian hegemony over the Shiite part of Iraq, how do we do that without uh, the U.S. assuming uh, the central dominant presence that it had uh, uh, in 2008 when uh, Obama was elected? Ali, would you like to, yeah. Well, you know, un unfortunately, I think this is one of those lost opportunities. Uh, after the U.S. invasion of, of Iraq, there was a true sense of optimism, not only in Washington, but also among many Shias who were critical of the role of the Islamic Republic. You had the grandson of uh, Grand Ayatollah Khomeini who moved to Najaf, Hossein Khomeini, because he's critical of the regime in Iran. Under U.S. protection, he was preaching a very different type of theology that we are hearing from the mouth of Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei. Many other Iraqi Shia and also many Iranian Shia who could not speak freely in Iran because they are against the theology of state and state takeover of religion, monopolization of the right to interpret uh, the, the divine law, who sought asylum in Iraq because they considered Iraq a free place where they can think freely and they can speak freely. But most unfortunately, because of the machinations of the Revolutionary Guards in Iraq, Iraq sank into disorder and chaos, and the U.S. has returned from Iraq. You know, and unfortunately, we see more or less domination of the Islamic Republic in Iran. So many of the proud schools of theology in Najaf and Karbala are now more or less directly or indirectly dominated by money, ideology, and the politics which is dominant also in Tehran. That's very unfortunate. So if Iraq is too late, this is why I am saying that even in the Sunni sphere of influence, there should be schools for Shia, there should be madrasas, there should be media, there should be debate fora, where many of those Shia who are critical of the regime in Iran can find a safe haven and can debate freely and can develop Shia theology. 
if Iraq is too late, Saudi Arabia is not too late. Kuwait is not too late. Even Bahrain is not too late. In all those societies, what you do need is just a little bit of freedom for debate, where the Shia who are critical can express themselves freely. Philip, did you have something? Thank oh, you. Yeah. Thanks. And I have a lot to add to this because you actually brought up a very, very big okay. point. Uh, I can give you a, a smaller example of how that idea, if you allow for more independent Shia voices to grow, uh, it makes a lot of the radicals crazy because they believe that their interpretation of how Shiism is, or, uh, is organized is the only answer and that everybody else is either crazy or not following the religion correctly. Khomeini himself said this. Um, so I was looking at Hezbollah. I actually wrote an article um, when Barry Rubin was still alive uh, about the independent Shia in Lebanon. And something that drove Lebanese Hezbollah crazy was the whole thought that there could be independent uh, centers for scholarship that could be developed in Lebanon that could teach new scholars how to do their jobs. Uh, Hezbollah tried to control, and they still do this now, uh, and they actually do find some competition from Harakat Amal, which technically is still aligned with them in parliament, um, where they're trying to vie for control of all of these clerical voices, and all the clerical leadership, with money, uh, sometimes through force. People are afraid to leave them. Even if they disagree, they're still promoting absolute wilayat al-faqih. So I still think, I mean, I would like to see uh, the United States try to promote this kind of semi-quietist form of thinking uh, among Shia. I mean, this is the this was the normative form of Shiism that was going on right up until the yes, Islamic I, Revolution. I, 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 I understand. That, we know exactly what the administration has done mm. in lots of ways. I, I believe that different uh, civil society organizations in Iran, uh, the administration cut back various forms of funding, and I know for sure in Lebanon, our yeah. friends at Ayabina, I mean, the administration, uh, the administration cut off funding for different programs that they had, and they are very opposed to Hezbollah. That's an independent Shia organization, and their entire thing is about being opposed to Hezbollah. Of course. But, and then when you watch this, again, what do you think this is going to, to mean for the future? It's not very sunny sights. Um, when I look at Iraq, you still, Sistani still has a very, very good level of control. He does. He even has his own militia structure that's out of Nejef. Um, but again, when you're competing against, you know, a hundred something uh, Iranian-backed Shia militias that are pushing this and they have all the cash and nobody else is coming in and saying, hey, here's a little extra money, hey, here's a little bit of uh, extra political support, it makes things very, very hard. I mean, we are now heading in the direction that Khomeini was quite literally plotting uh, when he was writing Wilayat al-Faqih. What Shiism was supposed to become was supposed to become his absolute Wilayat al-Faqih model. How do we counter that, though? And this is the, the biggest thing. I, I hate saying this, but you know, I'd rather just you know, get it out there. It means the United States, if we're actually interested in this, means we have to play kind of dirty. It means, it means sometimes backing certain radical Shia elements. There are other radical Shia elements. Some of them won't even talk to us. I mean, look at Muqtada al-Sadr. Muqtada al-Sadr has had plenty of problems with the Iranians. I wouldn't mind trying to co-opt him, even if he's not even welcome to it, if that means that he's going to uh, cause problems for the Iranians and how they're spreading their ideology. But then again, do we really have the stomach for that in this room where we're going to get into every little microcosm of, of Shia jurisprudence to uh, you know, save Iraq from, from their domination? I, I, again, I think we drop the ball and we just let it roll downhill. Mike, did you want to add something? Um, yes, thanks. Uh, I, 
Uh, I don't know how uh, easy it would be to pry southern Iraq away from Iran at this point, but Iran is vulnerable across the region. We talk about it now like it's a, like it's a, it, it is a, the rising power in the region. It does have a lot of influence, but that's because we have decided not to contest it in any way. If we decided to contest it, it's got huge vulnerabilities, and we could, we could make it burn up that $150 billion that we're about to give it to very quickly, um, and the place to do it is in Syria. Now, the Assad regime is vulnerable, and Hezbollah is vulnerable, and the two of them are Siamese twins that share the same organs. If we topple one, we topple the other. So we could give, we could give a huge strategic defeat to Iran if we just started turning up the, uh, the heat on them in, in, uh, in Syria. I mean, how many fighters does Hezbollah have? Uh, really seriously active fighters in, uh, in Syria. My guess, it's a guess, is that it's not much more than two or 3,000 guys. We, sometimes you hear the 10,000 and so on. I think it's an exaggeration. Uh, it, we, could, we could start causing Hezbollah an enormous amount of pain in Syria if that was our goal. And it doesn't have to be our direct hand. We just have to train, equip, train and equip Syrian forces and, and deploy them in areas where they can, where, where, where they can cause Hezbollah pain. That would, that would send a message to Tehran in two seconds. Um, we're going to have the microphone. Amal, would you like to? Amal uh, Modellelli with the Wilson Center. Uh, I have a question about Iran, actually, internal situation in Iran. The argument in town is that when uh, the deal goes through and the money is released, that the Iranian uh, people are going to benefit, and the economic trickle-down will make the liberal movement stronger, and then Iran will open up. Uh, could you please tell us what's Ali, the deal with the internal yeah. situation in Iran? Is the Green Movement dead forever? Mm. Is there any hope that this theory has any uh, credence? Thank you. Thanks, Emma. So we, we political scientists have actually a very poor record <laughs> of predicting revolutions. You know. <laughs> we didn't predict you know, the revolution of 1979. You know, we didn't predict you know, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. You know, so so, so we, we are not in the best position to make that kind of uh, predictions. However, I think it's important that you know, the Iranian society, yes, it is vibrant. And every once in a while, you know, it, it surprises us because people go to the streets and they protest against, against the regime, just like the Green Movement. Uh, the interesting thing is that the regime manages, and the security services, the intelligence services of the regime, they manage to infiltrate organized opposition activity. But if opposition activity is not organized, if people go to the streets because there is a general sense of anger towards the regime, you cannot predict it, and therefore you cannot counter it in an efficient way. This is why the Green Movement became a Green Movement. Uh, now, I do not have, I must say, I do not share the administration argument because the money which is supposed to benefit the Iranian public and particularly the middle class is in reality going to strengthen the security apparatus. It's going to strengthen the Revolutionary Guards. We already have seen that the budget of the military, particularly the Revolutionary Guards and the Basij militia, was increased with 20%. This is even before no. you know, the government of the Islamic Republic got hold of the money. There was 20% increase in the military budget. We are also likely to see that many of the infrastructure development projects, which the Rouhani government will start once they have the money, will be given to the contracting firms of the Revolutionary Guards, and they will be hiring the private sector actors as uh, uh, subcontractors. That actually also gives more control to the Revolutionary Guards rather than less. Spread of technology 
I had a debate, you know, some time ago here in town, uh, was perceived as something good for civil society and democracy. But unfortunately, in Iran, spread of technology also means more control. So everybody has a mobile phone. The, the system can control you more efficiently than ever before in the entire history of Iran. So these things, we need to look at them very, very critically. And, and uh, do not you know, make, make rash predictions that this is going to, to liberalize the Iranian political system. Actually, I do believe that Mr. Rouhani is perceived by the Revolutionary Guards and by Supreme Leader as expendable. The technocratic elites of Iran are perceived as expendable individuals. And now their time is over. They are no longer needed because the nuclear deal is home. So you can activate the revolutionary elements again. And this is a game which is going to continue for a very, very long time uh, uh, in, in, in the future. But when the Iranian public is actually going to rise against this uh, uh, type of mechanism, this we cannot predict as political scientists. It's actually very interesting. I remember a few years ago you and I spoke, uh, you and I spoke about this. You said that Rouhani has to be careful because if he actually, uh, if this deal actually comes through, if he actually manages negotiations with the United States, then it becomes obviously more expendable. He's yes. not useful anymore. They don't need him to serve that, that function that he was. That's, that's very interesting. Exactly. Um, we have the gentleman in the back here. Yes. The, thank you. If you could stand and identify yourself, please. Sure. Uh, Josh London with ZOA. Um, so my question is sort of about time horizons for the panel. Um, in the short term, right, for the duration of the Obama administration, we, 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 it's a pretty good guess that nothing's going to change uh, in terms of uh, U.S. posture in the region. Um, what's the time horizons between now and then of things reaching some sort of conclusion, whereas n n large or small, rather than, than folks just treading water and occasionally you know, flicking matches, where they may decide, well, here's our opportunity to actually seize and hold and you know, advance, knowing that there'll be you no... Mean the, you mean for the Islamic well, Republic to Actually, either way, either, either for the Islamic Republic or for Saudi Arabia to decide, here's our chance, there's, you know, if, if, if the U.S., in order to counter us, has to get more involved and they don't want to get more involved, or for that matter, in terms of taking signals on time horizons, if it seems clear that the White House is going to, you know, move into hands that won't differ okay, on these I'm going to ask you that. that so, that, so that's my basic question. What, what do folks see here as time horizons, given that? Okay, Ali, this will, uh, we're going to uh, shut down in a couple of minutes here. Close it up. So let's make this our uh, let's make this our last our last round. Ali, if you would like to start. So, so with the with the Iranian party, I think they are more patient, you know, than than, than most of us think. You know, I, I actually do agree that you know there is no sense of urgency from their point of view, you know, to to start you know a world revolution, you know, right now. They are patient. You know, they are playing a game which uh, they believe is serving their interests, and they also perceive the United States as a gradually declining world power right. in the propaganda of the Revolutionary Guards, but even also in their weekly magazines and journals. What they write is that the United States today is just like you know, Great Britain in the 1950s. You know, after World War II, it's weakened and the entire empire is coming down, and it has to be replaced. So they are, you know, also being economical, you know, in, in their fights. You know, if the U.S. can get entangled in conflicts all over the world, you know, in, in, in Asia, in the Far East, you know, then the U.S. cannot pay so much attention to what's happening in the Middle East. And by the way, if the best card that the Saudis, you know, and the Qataris and Turks can play is Jabhat al-Nusra and Daesh, 
then the world is actually going to sympathize more with the cause of, of the Islamic Republic of Iran. So, so for, from that point of view, you know, they believe that you know, time is working on their side and they can afford uh, to, to be patient. Uh, uh, to build their cells, revolutionary cells, and expand gradually and slowly. And this is why we see uh, the, the, the Saudis uh, being in, in, in such a right. difficult uh, predicament. Thanks, Ali. Philip? I think Ali said it perfectly. That's <laughs> essentially everything I would have said. Alhamdulillah. Mike, if you would like, if, if you say the same thing, I'm going to have a real problem. Oh, no, no, I, no. Ali said it beautifully, but please. <laughs> Ali did speak. Have the last Ali word. Ali did speak beautifully, but yes, I'll just, I'd like to add something to it, and Thank that is you. that the, um, uh, the, the priority for the, the, for the Iranians right now is, is shoring up Assad. Right? If the, and Assad is still vulnerable. Uh, even with the Russia, with the with the Russians there, um, and and as I said, if if Assad goes, that then Hezbollah is drastically the power of Hezbollah and influence is drastically reduced. So they're all all uh, their 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 um, their greatest effort is going to be on expanding uh, his power and expanding their influence within within Syria within the umbrella of his um, uh, of his power. Um, the Americans are we, we we are pretending that this is not going on. Or in the, President Obama keeps telling us that the Iranians and the Russians are going to work with us to get rid of Assad soon. You know, that, that, that change is just around the corner. We can't quite see it yet, but a little bit of patience and we're going to see it's going to happen. It's not going to happen. Um, they may possibly just maybe get rid of Assad. I can't see why they would do it. But they, the, what they, they can't get rid of is the Alawite, the, the Alawite structure of the regime because without that, they don't have their influence in the, in the region. So they're going to keep the Alawite structure intact. That is, they're not going to open it up to Sunni, the Sunni majority in the uh, in, in the country. Uh, it's going to remain the Ku Klux Klan uh, in, in in power, um, and um, uh, and they will likely keep Assad, the Grand Wizard, in power uh, as uh, as well. That's a, a lovely closing image. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank I want to thank you all for coming. Uh, thanks to Hudson Institute and thank you to C-SPAN as well. And uh, and uh, a round of applause for our excellent uh, panel. Thanks very much. Thank you.